On February 24, 2020, the largest nation in Europe, Russia, openly declared war on the second largest nation in Europe, its neighbor, in Ukraine. This was not a surprise. In 1991, when Ukraine formally declared its independence from Russia, Russia maintained close ties in the years afterwards. In 1994, Russia and Ukraine signed what's known as the Budapest Memorandum. It was an agreement that Ukraine was to hand over nuclear weapons in exchange for Russia granting security guarantees and territorial integrity. That lasted some 20 years. Then, in 2014, Russia invaded and seized the Ukrainian Crimea, an important shipping region. Tensions between the two nations continued to rise. Then, in 2021, it was not a matter of if, but when the next big invasion by Russia into Ukraine would occur. And as we'll hear in this episode, Russia had started to launch a series of limited online attacks in the weeks just before their physical invasion. Modern war consists of kinetic, that's soldiers on the ground, and cyber, disruptions in the day-to-day internet use, and cyberkinetic, such as disruptions in life-critical energy grids. There have been cyberkinetic events in Ukraine, but since 2022, we've seen the cyber or online attacks by Russia against the Ukraines have been limited. This is perhaps a consequence of the war itself being controversial both within Russia and around the world. It's also a consequence of the many years that Russia has been using Ukraine as a testbed for its online attacks. Ukraine, therefore, has built up a strong infrastructure and attracted some of the best InfoSec experts from around the world to help it. That doesn't mean there haven't been online attacks. There have. This is the story of Zadnos, an IoT-based botnet that was conscripted in the days immediately before the kinetic Russian-Ukraine war. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Ericode. I'm Ryan Slaney. Uh, I'm a staff threat researcher for Security Scorecard, and I'm the team leader of our Global Investigations Unit. I talked with Ryan shortly after Sector, Canada's largest InfoSec conference, which is held annually in Toronto. The backdrop of the ongoing struggle between Ukraine and Russia made this presentation extremely important and relevant. He presented information he had gathered at Security Scorecard. So we're mostly known as a uh, cybersecurity ratings company, but we do much more than that. Uh, We have uh, professional services, incident response, penetration testing, uh, supply chain management, uh, vendor risk management services. So you name it, we do it. Um, but again, we're mostly known for, for our ratings. Given that there are countless botnets operating in the world today, Zodnost, which means greed in Russian, might have been lost in the sheer number of alternatives. So I wondered what first attracted Ryan and his team to Zodnost in particular? What flagged this botnet as interesting? Yeah, so the reason that we came across this was um, essentially when the Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, we made a decision as a company that we were going to support U- Ukraine in any way we could. So being cyber threat researchers, we decided, well, let's look into the cyber attacks that are currently taking place in that theater and see if we can learn from them and you know, come up with some solutions to preventing them, or at the very least, at least identify them and, and show what's being done and what attack vectors are being used and what vulnerabilities are being exploited. 
So we came to a conclusion very early that we we're going to do this work and launch this investigation. And again, that's my job is I'm in charge of the investigation. So some components of what we were looking at at the time were uh, wiper activities. A wiper is malware that erases data from the hard drive. Perhaps the most famous of these was Shamoon, which attacked Saudi Aramco, a Saudi Arabian energy company, first in 2012 and then again in 2016. And perhaps more relevant here was in 2017, the NotPetya ransomware started in the Ukraine, and it included a wiper. So there was a few different wipers that were that we see deployed in spear phishing campaigns. Uh, a lot of misinformation that was going on, uh, and then DDoS attacks. So uh, even leading up to the invasion, there was a series of DDoS attacks that were uh, against Ukrainian government websites, which were, uh, and, you, and you may remember some of them even defaced websites saying you should be scared, uh, essentially just trying to, uh, you know, scare Ukrainian people into, uh, you know, giving up early um, and not putting up the fight that they, they ended up uh, putting up. So we looked into basically all that activity. So it was, it was a result of that broader investigation that led me to the discovery of Zadnos in particular, when I started diving deep into the, the, uh, the DDoS attacks that we were seeing taking place against Ukrainian infrastructure. Looking at a timeline then, we see that the first known Zadnos attack was on February 15th. That's roughly two weeks before the Kinetic War, which started on February 24th. Ryan's company first decided to look into the Ukrainian online attacks only later, after these events had first occurred. So essentially what we do for the botnet reporting is uh, monitor our feeds, our intel feeds, and look for, uh, you know, Twitter, Twitter announcements from our Ukrainian ministers saying, okay, my ministry website is down, we're, just, we're being uh, hit with a DDoS attack. And then so we immediately know that's either going or just recently took place. But we have tools in which we could query internet traffic for certain periods of time against different IPs. So I can go back and look at what was going on in the internet in that time uh, against this specific IP that hosts the website. And I can see the traffic coming to it and confirm, yes, indeed, that was definitely a DDoS attack based on the amount of traffic from all these different IPs that are going straight towards this one Ukrainian IP. Typically, a distributed denial-of-service attack is aimed at a specific IP address. That's not surprising. What Ryan is alluding to is the fact that it was a static IP address, meaning that the bad actor could flood that address and keep flooding it and keep it from functioning. What you want, then, is a dynamic address, one that can be moved if it ever comes under a denial-of-service attack. And at the time, Ukraine didn't make it that difficult for DDoS attacks to take place. They were hosting infrastructure on their own IPs, which were easily identifiable. And so um, one of the recommendations that we came up with later to, for how to protect against this type of attack is to move to a, you know, a cloud-based service for your website. So something like Cloudflare that detects DDoS attacks and can quickly move your website from different IPs to, to, uh, to get it you know, out from being hit by all these different requests. And given that we said that Zadnos struck on February 15th, we're actually going to start our timeline even earlier, in January, six weeks before the kinetic war in Ukraine started. Why? On January 14th, 2022, that's the day when the Russian government announced that they had arrested members of the re-evil ransomware gang. 
Here's NBC News. Russia taking down one of the top ransomware gangs in the world. The FSB, which is Russia's intelligence service, says it arrested members of our evil at the United States request. NBC News reporter Kevin Collier joins me now. So, Kevin, remind us about our evil. I think a lot of people hear that name and know it's familiar, but don't remember what they did. And then could you tell us about this takedown? Well, our evil, uh, that's one of the biggest uh, of the many ransomware groups. Uh, they're most famous uh, hacks where they took on JBS last year, the world's biggest beef supplier. And over the 4th of July, they hacked uh, the software company Kaseya, and they're through that got thousands of victims. Uh, this takedown, you know, we've seen this kind of big bust of a ransomware gang. We've seen members in Ukraine and other Eastern European countries have done these kind of like high profile busts. Uh, this is the first one that Russia has done, and it is a big one. This takedown was seen as a shift in Russian policies. Whereas before, they had not arrested their own in connection with international criminal activity. Russia started with re-evil, perhaps in an effort to gain positive media attention. Indeed, the InfoSec world welcomed these arrests. But Ryan suggests there's something else going on here, something that we'll see related, perhaps, to Ukraine. Russian intelligence apparatuses do not have a history of working together. Essentially, they compete against each other. So there's no deconfliction. So Western intelligence agencies, domestic and foreign intelligence, usually have a mechanism to deconflict. In Russia, it's not the case. They compete for resources, they compete for uh, status, um, and they often go after the same targets in two different manners. And so a good example of that would be the, the DNC campaign, uh, the attack on the DNC servers, where both the SVR and the GRU were on the same system. In the run-up to the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, Russian criminal hackers are known to have compromised the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee's email servers. Only email from the DNC has ever been released. Here's the CBC with more. Can you explain to us, uh, in the simplest terms possible, how can you tell that the Russians uh, are behind this leak? Well, Michael, uh, there's uh, forensic evidence and then circumstantial evidence. And the forensic kind of indicators come from the analysis initially done by CrowdStrike uh, working for the uh, DNC in uh, May. Uh, they published an update to this uh, information online for anybody to review, which indicates that this is a very sophisticated actor, um, actors. They found at least two um, highly skilled adversaries inside the networks uh, extracting information. And as they analyzed the software that was used to do that, they saw very common patterns used in other cases, which point back to Russians. Uh, CrowdStrike and others have been uh, working in this kind of analysis for years, and were able to say the techniques look Russian, the tools look Russian. That's the forensic side. Then if you look at the motivation, um, so this is an, a group that is well-resourced. So groups that are well-resourced need a reason to do something. So what nation would have a motivation to uh, penetrate and read these kind of things? Well, you could say that both China and Russia have an adversary, uh, have a reason to read what all campaigns are doing. Who would have the motivation to release that? Uh, clearly, the motivation for this kind of thing is a very Russian motivation. Before we get lost in three-letter acronyms, let's better understand the Russian agencies that we're going to be talking about. Think of the FSB, the Federal Security Bureau, as the equivalent of the U.S. FBI. 
For the rest of the episode, we're going to be talking more about two agencies in particular. One is GRU, which is the intelligence organization that works for the military. For the equivalent, think of it as the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA. The other agency we're going to be talking about is SVR, which is Russia's Foreign Intelligence Agency. And for that, you can think of the equivalent as the U.S. CIA. We would never have suspected that more than one of these agencies was in the email services of two American political political parties, were it not for a forensic analysis. And it was because the GRU came in and got noticed that they actually discovered that the SVR had previously compromised it too. You, you do not see that out of Western intelligence agencies. That's uniquely something that Russia does, uh, which I find interesting. And it's, it's always been the case as long as I've been investigating Russian cyber operations. And again, we see evidence of lack of coordination between the Russian intelligence agencies. On January 14th, 2022, the day the Russian FSU arrested members of Reevil, well, that was the day that the SVR launched a series of website defacements within Ukraine. Here's the CBC. We're keeping an eye on breaking news out of Ukraine, what appears to be a new escalation in tensions with Russia. As we have been following images like this, Ukrainian military forces in defensive positions digging in, Russia built up 100,000 troops on three sides of the border with Ukraine. But this morning, Ukraine is coming under a different kind of attack. Officials in Kiev say there is a massive cyber hack which has hit the government websites in Ukraine. So let's bring you the breaking details there. Dominic Volaitis watching developments from Bristol, England. Dominic. Yeah, good morning, Heather. Well, the websites of several government departments have been hit by this cyber attack, which we understand was launched in the early hours of this morning. Among those affected are the websites of Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the country's Security and Defence Council. But embassies here in the UK, the United States and Sweden have also been targeted. So this is very much a widespread cyber attack, Heather. On some of the sites, hackers left this message. Uh, Ukrainians, all your personal data was uploaded to the public network. All information about you has become public. Be afraid and expect the worst. This is for your past, present and future. That was written in three different languages, Heather, in Russian, Ukrainian and Polish. And you can see the message there also includes a reproduction of the Ukrainian flag and map, but crossed out. It doesn't, though, look like any content on the targeted websites has been changed, nor has any personal data actually been leaked. And although some of these websites are still down this morning, several are now back online. Website defacements are low-hanging fruit. They're not very sophisticated and not very technical to pull off. So, perhaps this is a bit of bold extrapolation here, but... What if the FSB arrested members of Our Evil on January 14th, perhaps, just perhaps, because they wanted their skills for some nation-state-funded actions later on February 15th? That is the date that we saw the new botnet, Zodnost. Zodnost is responsible for the distributed denial-of-service attack that occurred, a more sophisticated attack than, say, the website defacements that preceded it. Here's Euronews with more. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense confirming on social media saying that it had probably been targeted by a cyber attack and was working to restore its website functions. But this cyber attack did not just affect government pages, it also affected two state-owned banks, 
Privat Bank and Osha Bank, as reported by the Internet Monitoring Observatory, Netblocks. This has been described as a DDoS attack. That stands for Distributed Denial of Service. Essentially, it is a malicious attempt to disrupt a website and prevent it from functioning by flooding it with internet activity. Ukraine has not directly said who they believe is behind this attack, but they have appeared to point the finger at Russia. Have a look at this statement from the country's Center for Communications Strategy. Here they say it is possible that the aggressor of this attack resorted to little dirty tactics because, by and large, their aggressive plans are not working. This of course comes amid tensions and troop build-ups on Ukraine's eastern border. There is no response from Moscow to these allegations, but it is not the first time that Russia has been blamed by Ukraine for this kind of cyber attack. Indeed, it was just last month that dozens of Ukrainian government websites were also taken down by a similar attack, which also warned Ukrainian citizens to be afraid and prepare for the worst. On that occasion, as you can see, Ukraine blamed not just intelligence services in Russia, but also its ally Belarus. And in light of these latest cyber incidents, Helena, NATO is sure to be stepping up its efforts to help Ukraine on cyber defense, amid fears of not just a ground attack on Ukrainian territory, but also potentially a hybrid war as well. Okay, perhaps this is a coincidence that Russia's FSB arrests some of its more skilled criminal hackers, then weeks later launches a new botnet resulting in a distributed denial of service attack. Perhaps. Yeah, I, I would assess that it's a coincidence because the FSB, and again, the FSB would only have done this if it's if it was politically um, favorable for them to do this. Again, there's so many, the FSB has a history of hiring these hackers. So typically what they do is they say, you've been caught. You can either go to jail or you can come do it for us. So a, a great example of this is a FSB agent, a colonel known as uh, Dmitry Dokachayev. Dmitry Dokachayev, uh, known by Forb in the hacker community, was arrested and given this choice, and he became a colonel in the FSB. And he was in charge of recruiting other criminal hackers and bringing them on board. And that's what his job was. So he was essentially a handler of these criminal hackers that the FSB would use, uh, kind of outsource some of their work to. Um, now, interestingly enough, uh, Dmitry Dukachev was charged with uh, espionage. So he was actually charged with spying for the West and put in jail. And I think he's been released right lately. But the FSB, again, they, they only arrest people that have run afoul of them. So typically they'll let people operate as long as they're possibly getting a cut or they're doing work for the FSB on the side. So the... If, if the FSB is to go out and arrest these criminal actors, it's there's something politically motivated behind it. It could have been an agreement with the Americans to say, uh, oh, look, we'll go do something about this group in exchange for something else. Or maybe the, maybe they were trying to distract. But in, uh, in my experience, the GRU and the FSB do not work together. They do not de-conflict. One hand does not know what the other is doing. So... I'd be highly surprised if it was an orchestrated move to, to launch Zadnos attacks um, while the FSB is making arrests. Um, and the GRU is who we believe is behind Zadnos botnets. And on February 15th, on that day, there were other well-known botnets engaged as well. So was that a coordinated event? Uh, in many cases, the GRU looks like it's outsourcing a lot of this, the, their activity, especially the more... Uh, 
less sophisticated botnet activity. So if we look at like Killnet, for example, Killnet is a you know very low sophisticated botnet um, that's basically using some of the same tactics as Zadnos, but it's it, more of a crowdsource type botnet where it's asking Telegram followers to download scripts and then launch the attacks. So we did see stuff like you know Killnet's been around and involved. And uh, a lot of some of the ransomware groups even took Russia's side during this time. Like Conti famously made an announcement that they were uh, going to be on you know Russia's side and attack critical infrastructure of countries that are uh, you know against Russia. And then again, Anonymous took sides with the West and started doing it. So there was a lot of different actors at play from the very beginning. Zadnos struck again on February 23rd and again on February 28th. And there's no evidence that Killnet participated in either of those later attacks. Again, attribution. It's very hard. So how do we know that Zadnos acted alone? So the difference is um, two things. One, Zadnos never had a social media profile or any kind of presence. They didn't claim credit for any of the attacks that they made. Killnet can have an attack on the smallest of target and it will announce it to the world that it was responsible for it. So if you want to know if Killnet was responsible, just check their telegram and they'll, they take credit for everything that, that they do. Um, where Zadnos has no public profile. It, it's very much, um, you know, uh, an incognito uh, group or actor um, that isn't, or isn't in the business of being recognized for what they're doing, which again points to an intelligence agent's uh, service versus uh, you know criminal gang. So that's interesting. A nation-state actor will have more resources at its disposal, and it will not want to take credit. Whereas criminal organizations, well, they're scrappy, and they will seek whatever publicity they can get for branding purposes. But there's more to the attribution of these attacks. So a couple things, both technical and then geopolitical. So. Let's start with geopolitical because I like to talk about that stuff. So if you look at what is of strategic interest to the Russian government at the time of the Zadnos attacks, uh, they closely line up with the targets of Zadnos. So let's go through some of the examples. So we saw uh, the release of the famous postage stamp from the Ukrainian post office, which was depicting the Ukrainian soldier giving the finger to the Moskva. So Moskva is that flagship that Ukraine attacked and sunk. Um, clear, and it was a fl flagship of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. So this was after the Kinetic War had started on April 15th, 2022, when the postage stamps were first released. Here's Deutsche Welt. An air of defiance. Ukrainians are queuing up to buy a stamp that they now believe depicts Russian defeat. This is the symbol of Ukraine's victory, which is yet to come. The recently released stamp portrays the moment when a Ukrainian soldier told the Moskva ship to go F itself, when the Russian forces on board tried to capture Ukraine's Snake Island in the Black Sea. Its release feels somewhat prophetic to Ukrainians now, as the very ship depicted here is the one that came under fire this week. To Ryan's point, on that day, April 15th, Zadnos, not Kilnet, struck again. On the day that online sales were going to start, Zadnos hit the Ukrainian postal website. So that is a geopolitical factor in terms of, okay, that's of strategic importance to the Russian government. It's definitely a black eye on the, uh, on the, uh, the Russian Navy losing that ship. And so they were going to, they were, you know, adamant they were going to try to disrupt the sale of this stamp. 
Uh, and then the technical is looking at, okay, well, what IPs and what methods did we see? And so we know Zadnas primarily, well, no, they only use two different, they use DNS amplification attacks and they use HTTP flooding. So perhaps we should define the difference between HTTP flooding versus DNS amplification attacks. So HTTP flood is basically like going to the website a million times in one second. So the web server just cannot keep up and it eventually fails uh, and it goes offline. So you knock a website offline just by too many requests from various IPs all over the world, all hammering the same website. So that's a, not that sophisticated. You can have scripts that will do this for you. And there's different tools like stress test tools that are legitimate tools for websites and servers that you can use and then just use for malicious purposes. DNS amplification is a little bit more sophisticated. So essentially what you do is you look for an open resolver, a DNS resolver. So essentially a server on the internet that will take DNS requests from anyone and provide you an answer. So with DNS, you're looking to convert a domain name to an IP address. So, okay, let's go with um, uh, vamosi.com. So I want to know what IP it is. So I asked this open resolver, where's vamosi.com? And it sends me back an answer. Um, it's on this IP. Great, thank you. So what if I pretend to be the target and I ask the same question? Well, then the intended target now gets the response that it never asked for in the first place. And what if I automate that? And what if I ask for a lot? So I say, give me all records you have on this. And the DNS server responds with a huge, um, you know, a huge response, which quickly, um, is automated through various other IPs that are doing it at the same time. And then it knocks that server offline because you get, I'm now receiving so many requests that I never actually put out there that I'm going to shut down because of that. So that's the two different uh, methods that they used in this case. And I understand that Zodnos primarily used routers in its attack. What we discovered is that they use MicroTik routers. So MicroTik's a Latvian company that started making these routers uh, well years ago. And they've been plagued with problems ever since. So there's been patches for them, but as we know, not everyone is you know on top of patching their rotors. And so there's two things in these rotors that cause this issue. One, they can they have the ability of operating as an open proxy, which can be turned on. And two, they have they have DNS resolvers in them, which accept commands externally. So this is obviously the hackers, and, and Zadno's not the only uh, botnet that takes advantage. Many, many botnets take advantage of MicroTicker. There's Marie, um, Divinis, there's, there's a bunch of different ones that do it as well. Um, but mainly because they are running these open proxies and open resolvers by default, and people don't even know it. So all you have to do is find it, and then you can use it in any manner you want. Um, and that's the, that's the issue with these. So... Um, now, one of the things that MicroTik could do is by default disable these services so that they're not running. And the other thing with the DNS, if you have a DNS resolver on a rotor, it should be trained or configured to not accept external requests. It should only be serving internal uh, clients, your internal network, and not accept anything from the outside. So that's one way you can configure this to, to make it to not basically be used by a botnet. So this wasn't really a vulnerability in the router itself. So there is vulnerabilities in it, but Zadnos did not rely on that. They just relied on basically what I would consider a misconfiguration. Uh, they're not configured properly 
and Zadnos took advantage of this. That's that's what I would classify it as. There there is botnets that take advantage of the vulnerability and then and then use that. Um, I know Maria, is, I believe, is one of them, but Zadnos did not. It was less sophisticated than that. Simply just look for open resolvers and open proxies on these devices and then took advantage of them. So how would you look for open DNS resolvers? How would you do that? Perhaps you would start by looking at something called Shodan. Shodan, or uh, I think there's one called spies.ru that literally just posts every open resolver on the internet. So it's not they're not hard to find. They're pretty easy. So Shodan or other, there's tons of different proxy lists that just advertise open proxies and they're free for the picking. And there are open DNS resolvers available on other Internet of Things devices as well. Is something like this becoming common because people just aren't turning it off? That's a really good question. So we know that uh, IoT has been used for botnets. I mean, there was a big attack using IP cameras. So I'm, but I don't, I'm not familiar if what the, if there was proxies and, and DNS resolvers in them, but at the same time, there's, there's only so many, you know, firmware and OSs that are installed in these devices. And some may actually come default with these, uh, these, um, capabilities, even though the the hardware will never actually rely on them. Right. So if I've got a microwave or dishwasher, that's got a Wi-Fi connection. Does it really need to have a DNS resolver in it? But it might, given whatever firmware was put in it, right? So, and eventually hackers are going to find that and start using your, you know, your microwave or your dishwasher as a, uh, one of their bots if it is indeed useful to them. So they will find a way. Um, and the, so the IoT is just basically in, it's increasing the the footprint of these devices that may potentially be used as bots in the future. So, in other words, I could get a cheap chipboard and I can put that into my IoT device. Because it's generic, I don't know that all these extra features are turned on by default. I don't know that I need to turn them off. That's probably how we're getting into these situations. Yeah, and then, like I said, coupled with those sites that are consistently scanning for such services on the internet, then it's only a matter of time before your device ends up on that list and that starts to get used by bad guys. So I asked Ryan to walk me through how somebody would use a DNS resolver. As I understand it, you would use it internally. Yeah, well, that would be a legitimate purpose of a DNS resolver, would be an internal request. So I'm behind a, a rotor. I want to go to google.com. I ask the rotor, what's the IP address for that? And it gives it back to me. So that's that's what the initial, that's what DNS is all about. But why, if I'm saying I'm at home and that's what my rotor is doing for me, why should my neighbor be able to query my rotor for that for that answer? They have their own, you know, use your own DNS server. You don't need to be putting traffic on my network to do that. So internal purposes make sense. External, not unless it's, uh, you know, DNS rotor that's on like, a, you know, a, a large um, ISP network, it shouldn't be handling external requests. So internally, yes, that makes sense. Externally, no. So that's a misconfiguration. Uh, in order to use or set up this attack, you need to have some sort of script because you need, you need something to say, okay, what's the target IP? So the target IP is the IP of which your target website resolves to. That's what you're going to be targeting. And so you have to pretend to be that IP. And so you need to make a custom DNS request. So you would need to have some sort of uh, either a script or a program to customize the packet before it's being sent to make it look like, okay, well, here's the source IP and the source IP is not actually your IP, it's the target's IP because that's where you want the response to go back to. 
And then you would send that request. And of course, we know you can automate that by sending how many, how many requests a second do you want to send? Well, a lot, because I want to have a ton of responses. And again, to maximize the, the size of the response coming back, I'm going to request every record that that thing, that that DNS server has. And so it's going to give me a really big response, which is going to help further overload the target systems. So that's how you'd set that up. I mean, again, this is part of stress testing. So there is legitimate tools out there you can get, or if you can go on GitHub, I guarantee within your first, you know, three seconds of searching GitHub, you'll find someone has already made one of these that you can that you can use. Um, that's the, you know, the, the good and bad of GitHub, right? So that's pretty much how you go about that. HTTP is even easier. There's so many scripts that you can use in stress test tools that will just do HTTP flooding. So they, they just try to hammer a web server with as many requests as possible and knock it offline. Uh, that's, again, that's, that's, you know, rampant on the internet. You'll find that wherever you look. So Ryan, in discussing mitigations for this, points out that firewalls would not necessarily protect somebody from this type of attack. It's not a defense, no. So, I mean, it's really what you need to do is you need to, and you can't just block Russian IPs either, because Zadnos, I think, only used maybe two IPs out of the thousands they had. They they were all, all over the world. They they actually, I think, they went out of their way not to pick Belarusian and Russian IPs. It was only in the later attacks that we actually saw a Russian IP being used. I think that was probably by accident. Uh, so firewall won't help, but what you need to do is so if you if you believe that you are going to be the target of a DDoS attack, you have to have uh, you know an anti DDoS uh, control. And so companies like Akamai and Cloudflare, that's what they do. So like I said earlier, they have the ability they host your website on an IP. If they detect it's becoming under attack, they move it. They move it to a different IP immediately. Uh, so your website doesn't go down it just quickly and then DNS records get updated and then people can find your website again. So it's almost like a cat and mouse game. The DDoS, you know, hammers the website, Cloudflare moves it to a different IP, then they find the new IP and they hammer it again and then it gets moved around. Um, but again, it's all automated and it's, uh, it's basically, you know, really good defense for that. The other side of things that you can prevent is be a good internet citizen. So harden your devices, make sure they're not running open proxies and open resolvers if you don't need them. Make sure they're only accepting internal requests versus external. So these are all things that people can do that cut down on the amount of bots that are available to botnet operators. To some degree, given past attempts on the Ukrainian internet, this Zotnet botnet was predictable. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's really interesting times as a, as a cybersecurity investigator with the Ukrainian war going on. I, I think a lot of things that several people had predicted, including myself, may not have come to light. So, I mean, I thought I thought there would have been a lot more kinetic cyber attacks used in Ukraine than what we've seen, or at least that's what's been reported. Uh, I know Microsoft and some other uh, companies are reporting about there are there were attacks on critical infrastructure, but as we see now, the, the Russians seem to have moved very quickly to kinetic strikes instead. So it remains to be seen whether or not they their cyber operations were actually effective or they weren't. And that's why they moved. Or were was it a one-two punch? We you know hit them with cyber, then hit them with a kinetic, um, you know, a cruise missile or, or or other type of attack artillery. So I think that's very interesting right now. And it's something that I'm, I'm looking into and, and working on for my next presentation is the... Uh, kind of the, the ineffectiveness or at least the, the perceived ineffectiveness of Russian cyber attacks during the Ukrainian conflict. 
Um, and it's something I'm, you know, highly interested in right now, just to, as, uh, you know, a, as an investigator, uh, primarily on Russian cyber activities. It, it's, it's a very interesting time for me right now. Um, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's not so interesting for the Ukrainians who are dealing with the war. Perhaps the ramp-up, starting in 2014, was so long that there was an opportunity for the Ukrainians to prepare. I mean, they had some eight years of constant online attacks from Russia to learn from. Then, when the kinetic war started, Ukraine was probably in the best place it could be to fight off their attack. Well, you said it, Rob. And so what we see in the Ukrainian military right now being you know, very close to Western standards is the same for their cyber defenses. Ukraine was the testbed of Russian cyber activities since 2014, maybe even before that. Remember in 2015, when Black Energy had took out their uh, Oblenergos. In December 2015, in the dead of winter, more than 230,000 people in Ukraine were plunged into darkness. This was the first publicly acknowledged successful attack on a power grid anywhere in the world. The attackers, the group known as Sandworm, with associations to the Russian government, used Black Energy 3, a malware that allowed them to take advantage of the power grid system that had originally been built as part of the Soviet Union. So the Russians knew it really well. So they've seen pretty much all of it. And the, the question that I have is, did this use of Ukraine as a testbed actually make Russia's uh, cyber operations ineffective when the time really came that they needed them to be effective? So should they have not done that 2015 attack? Should they have not hit the air traffic controller in the Kiev airport? Um, uh, again, because there, you know, there wasn't anything much different in the attacks that we saw early on. The wipers were were not that sophisticated. We didn't see any massive cyber attacks that were knocking out power. I know there was attempts, but nothing that actually came to fruition. So you're absolutely right. The West has not only been involved in helping Ukrainian militarily, but clearly they've given them some some good advice on cybersecurity best practices, and, and the Ukrainians have listened to it and have done it. Uh, and that's paying dividends for them. This is another reminder to never let your guard down, to learn from past attacks, no matter how trivial they might seem at the time, to prepare for the more sophisticated attacks yet to come. I think that's it. That, I'm glad you brought that up. For the war, I, I would talk about how Russia is just playing around with Ukraine. It, it's literally no, they can they launch attacks and they know nothing will happen and they're testing things out. But I really do think that that actually is, has come to harm them at the end of the day there. The Ukrainians have prepared for these attacks and the Russians just aren't able to come up with anything more, you know, novel, at least that we've been able to detect. Maybe Russia had already played its best hand back in 2015. And despite recent arrests, maybe Russia didn't have anything new to launch against Ukraine. And then hence why we're seeing the cruise missiles and drones attacking critical infrastructure. So they're relying on, uh, you know, I mean, I guess they're sophisticated methods, but they're they're more brute force than they were stealthy and, and sleek with the cyber stuff. HTTP flooding is again what Killnet uses. It's very simple, um, whereas the other the uh, DNS amplification is is a little bit more sophisticated. So we look at technical factors and geopolitical factors. So using the simple rubric, we know that Zadnos has been used by the GRU and at least one other country as well. This attack on Finland in April 14th, 2022, certainly aligns with the goals of the Russian government. The uh, Finnish parliament, on the day that they announced that they were going to be 
uh, seeking NATO membership, uh, we saw a Zadnos attack on the Finnish government website. So the fact both technical and geopolitical factors are lining up and they're identifying to me as Zadnos attacks. Um, the other thing I do look is make sure Killnet's not responsible. And again, all the ones that the Zadnos and Killnet had nothing to say about. So they weren't involved because as we know about Killnet, they will take credit for anything they do. And in these particular cases, they did not. So it looked like Killnet was given, you know, more of a mandate to harass and go after any target they kind of deem necessary, or Zadnos is more professional. It went after strategic targets of political interest to the Russian government. I asked whether Ryan saw any evidence of other aggression from Russia against other countries in the world. I think the Russians have their hands full right now. I think the cyber cards have been played. Again, like you said, I think we've probably, we've seen their capabilities and then what might be going on might not have been detected or reported at this moment. But again, it, it, it's pretty clear. It looks like Russia has is transitioned from cyber warfare to regular modern warfare, uh, kinetic warfare. Um, I think it's interesting. We're, we're probably seeing a lot of countries looking at this conflict from both the cyber and military angle. So China obviously are probably looking at this and thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is how it would play out if we invaded Taiwan. You know, would the West supply Taiwan like they're doing Ukraine? Um, and they're probably looking at, well, what was the, you know, what, how uh, successful were the cyber attacks that they did? And maybe if we were more successful cyber, we wouldn't need to do a bigger military invasion. We could, you know, cripple their defense uh, and it would be a you know a cakewalk versus what's going on in Ukraine. Um, obviously, North Korea is is still very active in their nuclear development, so they'll they're continue to use cyber espionage to try to gain technological secrets and and, and enhance their their capabilities. Um, the other interesting thing about North Korea is they use cyber as a means of funding the regime as well, so ransomware and uh, and type of stuff like that, where traditional nation state threat actors don't typically dabble in any of that stuff. The Russians do, but more of as a um, disruptive technique than actually finance their their regime. Um, so yeah, so again, I think China will be looking at this and 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 taking notes for sure. North Korea obviously is uh, very interested in uh, increasing their their nuclear capability or at least developing it. Um, I think another nation that you don't, which was quite active, is Iran in terms of the cyber realm, and, and it's funny I'm. Since the invasion of Ukraine, I don't think I've heard one thing about what's going on in Iran. Um, but again, now, if you look at kind of the geopolitical um, developments in that country, they they kind of have their hands full internally at the moment with the amount of protests that are going on, rightly so. So it, it's interesting things, you know, things evolve, things change. Um, but I've always had the mentality that geopolitical issues are always what is going to give you... Um, uh, an idea of what's to come with cyber capabilities. So if anything is interestingly, you know, if there's a geopolitical issue, then it will almost always involve a cyber type attack or espionage, anything like that. So usually if I'm looking for the next big thing, I just look at, well, what's the biggest geopolitical issue right now? And cyber will closely follow that. I'd like to thank Ryan Slanning for coming on the show and talking about his research into the Zadnos botnet. It's one of many, but in this case, it was consequential in the sense that it led up to the physical war in the Ukraine.
Hey, I'm just getting started with error code. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great episodes coming up. So subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform. I don't want you to miss out.